Hello, and welcome to Dr. Chris, the Surgery Guy, the show where we talk about, well, frankly, things that interest me. We're here, we're going to do something a little bit different today. Um, so far, we've had uh, shows where we interview guests and kind of talk about things that are innovative in general surgery and how things are kind of moving in a, in a forward direction and how how general surgery and, and the things related to it are, are being advanced and sort of a, an informational show kind of to get people more interested in things that are more innovative, things like robotic surgery, et cetera. And uh, I definitely still want that to be a big part of the show, but I wanted to talk a little bit different this week and share a couple things. The uh, and it's, it's kind of hard. I mean, 2020 has been a very difficult year for, well, pretty much everyone in the entire world from conflict to disease, quarantines, global pandemics. I mean, these are things that are, are pretty unprecedented and has a lot of people thinking about things they may not have thought about before and, and general surgeons as well, doctors in general. And I, I kind of wanted to st- share a story um, about, about death and death's not a real popular thing that we like to talk about in medicine. Uh, it's kind of the enemy and you know that's how we're brought up but we're taught to fight death we're taught to avoid it we're taught to that death is a failure that death um is something that uh is is the absolute worst thing that could happen to someone and you know when, when you really look at it it's one of the only certain things that is in life uh there's no one that's immortal at this point and so when we look at death, we, we need to manage it better. And it, it's not something that we're taught about well. When, you know, we're in training, we literally have conferences, morbidity and mortality conferences, where we discuss deaths and how they can be avoided and discuss the treatments and how different treatments might have prolonged death in certain cases. And, you know, it, it's still seen as failure. And in and, and some circumstances, in some morbidity and mortality conferences, um, residents are actually made to feel, or they're ridiculed. They're, um, maybe ridiculed is the wrong word. They're, you know, it, it's a it's a hostile environment. And, you know, residents' decisions are challenged and they're made to defend their actions. And, you know, I've even been to some of these conferences where, the blame of death is placed squarely on the face of the resident. And so it's kind of no wonder that we tend to shy away from it, that it's, we see it as a failure and not a, a natural conclusion to life, which is kind of how we probably should be thinking about it. And, you know, in, in, in medical school, we're really trained in, in a similar way. I mean, there's, there's a, a point in psychology where we learn about Kubler-Ross and the, the stages of of grief and kind of that helps us to a certain degree understand how people deal with death and deal with loss in general. But, you know, it's not something that we're really taught on how to deal with. And so I, I want to deal with it today. I want to talk about, you know, situations that, that come up that are difficult to deal with and maybe help give people some strategies on how they can be dealt with and how to maybe not run away from it and sort of the value that patients can see in that um, and families can see in that um, and help patients to make and families to make difficult decisions that, 
you know, are, are not things that are in our in our DNA, if you will. They're not stuff that we're trained for. So we're gonna kind of we're gonna talk about that today, and that's it's gonna be a little bit of a departure, a little bit of a departure, and you know, it's something that uh, I embrace in my practice, and and it's been extremely rewarding, and I'm I'm hopeful I can share some of that today, and I I kind of want to start out uh, with a story about a patient that I took care of a number of years ago. And it's one of those scenarios where as I've reflected on it a little bit more and more of the details have come back, but my family and I were having dinner the other night and my wife got a text and my youngest daughter who's in eighth grade and her sixth grade teacher who my wife had kind of become friends with texted her and said, hey, I just wanted to share this with you. And it turned out that her sister's husband had been under my care probably five or six years ago, maybe longer. And unfortunately, he had a type of cancer and he was, um, it was sort of the end stages. And I can't remember exactly what I had been asked to do, but basically I'd asked to, I can't remember if it was like maybe place a feeding tube or maybe it was a diverting colostomy, something that someone thought would, you know, help him, uh, you know, either fight the disease or give him some extra time. And, you know, in short, I was able to have a conversation with him and in some way, shape or fashion, I was able to impact the end of their life or his life so much so that when, you know, the, the two sisters that we are talking about here, when they figured out that they both knew me in sort of different ways, one from just being my, my daughter's father and the other being, you know, the physician that took care of this late other lady's husband, they both sort of, you know, expressed their respect for me. And the, the woman of the, of the patient who's died, had died, was so grateful for how I had taken care of this man in the end and how real I had been with them and how honest I had been with them to the point that, you know, this five or six years later, they were still extremely, or she was still extremely grateful that I had been the one called to help take care of him. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things, you know, you're eating dinner and you just hear the story and at first you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then you step back a little bit and God, is that humbling to think that, you know, five years later, these people, this lady still thinks enough of me to reach out and say, thank you. And if that's not what we're in this for, then we need to relook at what we're doing. And even though, you know, this, this gentleman passed of his disease, in some way, shape or form, I provided comfort at the end of his life to his family such that they remember me five to six later five to six years later and how many times have we been in a surgeon in the capacity of a surgeon or a doctor in general and you talk to a patient and you're like well who did your surgery last year and the answer is uh and they, they just don't know i mean and, you know we don't always get the chance to have the impact on people like that and not that i need to be remembered because i I don't. It's not that. It's just that having that sort of positive influence, I think, should probably be the goal, not the exception, you know? And it's something that I alluded to when we were kind of talking about the intro here. We're just not trained this way, you know? In residency, 
I remember so many times, especially when in residency and in training, when you're at a tertiary and quaternary type care center, you know, you, you deal with very, very sick patients and, you know, you start talking to these families and, you know, the first couple of times that you end up having to do that, you just don't do well, you know, and you, you kind of, you tell them the facts, you tell them this or that, and you just, you, and in effect, you know, I think I was just, blunt, just too blunt, blunt in the delivery of what's going on, not empathetic enough to, to what's going on. And, you know, it's not that I ever really got complained on or that someone had come to my program director and said, Hey, you know, so-and-so wasn't very comforting. I think, but that's not success. That's, that's just, you know, they're so wrapped up in their own grief that whatever news I told them was just news. And then, they had to deal with it on their own. And, you know, hopefully they got some comfort from, you know, maybe one of my attendings or maybe one of the, the, the pastors at the, at the hospital, the clergy or whatever your hospital might have. And you hope they gave them some sort of comfort, but I don't know. And, and that's kind of sad. I don't know. And it took a while to sort of figure this out. And, you know, I, I had a case Gosh, I think I was a third or fourth year resident and it actually wasn't even my case. It was one of my chief residents and uh, she was great and uh, we really respected her and we had a patient on the service. He was, I don't think he was even 25 and he had a god awful sarcoma and in short, he got a couple different surgeries and over the period of about six to eight weeks, he just he ended up succumbing to his disease. And you know, I wasn't the primary on his service, or I was on the service, but I wasn't the one primarily taken care of. We had we divided up patients so that you, know, you kind of had your patients, and then we kind of knew everyone's patients when we covered on call and whatnot. But this was, you know, the chief resident's patient, and he uh, <clears throat> he didn't have any family. Uh, I don't know if he was estranged from his family or if he had some sort of background where maybe his family had passed. I, I don't even remember, but. He just didn't have anyone. And so whenever he passed, I remember kind of thinking, oh, that's, that's terrible and what a tragedy. But, you know, I moved on. Uh, and so then a week or two weeks later, um, the chief resident was presenting at an M&M conference so that we could, you know, learn from whatever was going on with the patient. And I was fortunate, to be, fortunate enough to be in a program where the M&M conference was not confrontational. So we always took it as a chance to learn. And maybe in a case where everything had been done correctly, you know, we still have the opportunity to learn about the disease process that took the patient or, or affected the patient or whatever. So it was a positive experience for the most part. But the chief resident, she was presenting, and it was a long case because he'd been there for eight weeks and she presented his disease and how it affected him and the various surgical interventions that had been done and tried. And, that, you know, I think at one point he got chemotherapy as well and, you know, central lines, this and all kinds of procedures and treatments. And she kind of, she went through all of it and she did a great job presenting it. Um, and by the end, as she's getting towards the end and him not doing well and then eventually getting transferred to the unit and whatnot, um, you know, and end of life decisions that had been made. Uh, I mean, she was in tears, absolute tears, and uh, kind of thought, "Wow, that's that's strange." I'd I'd never seen her cry before, and um, yeah, she was crying, and uh, no one had issue with this. It wasn't, you know, kind of like there's no crying in baseball and there's no crying in surgery. I mean, everyone sort of understood. But what I didn't realize is, you know, over that period, and again, this this gentleman had no family. 
she had been taking time after after her shift, you know, to sit with him for thirty or forty minutes, you know, nearly every day, and just kind of kind of talking with him and giving him some sort of peace. And I remember at the time thinking, God, that that's just so much effort, <laughs> and that it was just uh, a lot. And you know, sure enough, uh, my younger self, I was just kind of thinking, you put in all this effort, and now you're upset, and just you know, wow. Um, and then the, one of our big attendings, one of the, he had actually, he was partially retired, but he was a big, big name and everyone knew him and everyone respected him. He, very old school surgeon, not the kind of guy that you would expect to do this, but he stood up as she was f- finishing her, uh, her, uh, presentation. And he kind of said, thanks. Uh, thank you for the presentation. We understand. I think we understand the facts of the case. I don't think we need to go any further. And he gave her a cloth handkerchief. And uh, that was for her tears, obviously. And, and she sat down and um, she dried her eyes and she got herself together. And my program director, a man I, I respect very, very much, looked and very somberly said, operations on the dying are frequently followed by death. And he said that a lot. Um, that's something he said often when there was a case that seemed ine- inevitable. And you know, when a case is inevitable, um, it's okay to let the inevitable happen. And that was sort of his message. In the past, when he had said this, it always was kind of, it was always something funny that he, not funny, uh, it was just something that, you know, it kind of lets you know that you're off the hook. It lets you know that he deemed your actions to be appropriate. It was sort of a passing sign, if you will. Uh, you pass, you know, you, you did everything right and the patient was going to die no matter what you did. And, and, you know, it was sort of your passing grade, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But when he said it on this case, it, somehow it hit home a little harder and that operations on the dying are frequently followed by death. And I think that when you expand that, when you expand that to just in medicine in general, treatments on the dying are frequently followed by death. And, you know, we can, we can talk about every aspect of medicine and how when someone's dying, kind of whatever you're going to do is often going to fail. And that's okay. And that's something that we've got to change just a little bit. Not saying we should not treat patients, of course not. But when someone's done, when they're done fighting, whether it's cancer or terminal disease or whatever, that's okay. That's not failure. And when someone is in a position where they have a terminal disease that maybe they don't realize it, I think it's our job to help them get there. And I think that's where we really fail. I don't think that we often enough sort of say, you have something terrible and that sucks. And I'm sorry, but we've got to get them to the point where they can somehow get comfortable. And that's not easy. That's not easy for everyone. And so with that, I think it's really important that we stop doing things where we're not dishonest with patients, but maybe not as honest as we could be. You know, a good example would kind of come from like the following story where you have a patient that comes in and on seat and, you know, they've lost weight and they're nauseated or whatever. So then invariably the CAT scan is done in the emergency room 
and we see that they have a large gastric mass, okay? They also have masses and, and lesions throughout their liver, and you start talking to the patient, and they haven't been able to eat, and they've got a 60-pound weight loss, and, you know, I mean, we can all see where this is going, and I think I've seen it so many times, and in, in not necessarily exactly this story, but in stories like this where the first person that sees the patient says, well, we need to get some tissue so we can make the diagnosis. And then, then the patient wants to know, well, what does it show? What does it show? And we kind of tell them routinely, it's like, well, we need to see what the pathology shows before we can really make any plans. And so we, we leave the patient for a couple of days just wondering what the heck is going on. And in some scenarios, depending on patient's education status and whatnot, they're left just thinking they're, they're going to be okay. And they're, they're, they're get there to get, sorry, they're just there to get better. And then we get the pathology back and it shows, you know, some sort of cancer. And then it's a matter of, well, you got to wait for the stains to see what kind of chemotherapy. And then the oncologist is going to come by and long story short in that time, you, they may have seen three, four five different physicians. And when they leave, and when they've gotten their diagnosis and they're going to follow up with the oncologist or maybe the surgeon or, or whoever, they're left saying, yeah, there's some cancer, but we have treatment options. And the reality is the patient, at least that I just described, we've got limited options and anything that we're doing is for palliation only. And they don't leave the hospital necessarily knowing that. And in my mind, I think that's a crime. I really do. Um, my take has always been to be honest with the patient. Um, as I've aged, I don't think it's my job to be brutally honest anymore. But when this scenario comes up and I realize that I'm the first patient or first person that's really going to talk to this family or patient, then I sit down. I sit down with the patient. I make an effort to take time and so that I'm not rushed, I literally make an effort, I make, give them that time and I set aside a time in my schedule when I have the time to speak with them. And if that's later in the day, then so be it. And I literally make an effort to pull up a chair and we sit down and we go over exactly whatever we found, whatever I know thus far. And I think we sometimes get lost in you know, I don't have tissue yet, but your scans, your symptoms, everything is really suspicious for, and then whatever, right? Because most of the time we're just looking for the tissue for the confirmation. And it's not like there's a huge mystery here. It's just really what subtype it's going to be or, you know, what the formal treatment might be based on stage and yada, yada. But in essence, you've got to tell them, look, this looks like stomach cancer. Stomach cancer is not great. And, you know, I wish that I had better news for you, but it looks like we have a metastasis to the liver. When you've got a stomach cancer that's gone to the liver, there's really not a whole lot of surgical options. Um, there's things that we can do for palliation so that you can eat. There's feeding tubes. There's this. These are the options. But in the end, we're talking about treatment that will help you to feel better but we're not really going to give you a whole lot of extra time. And this part is hard because the families, they're going to break down. I mean, you've just told them that they're going to die. 
and that it's not going to be a long time and that whatever their hopes and dreams and bucket lists and children's dreams, those things are different now and they've got to get that figured out. And there's going to be a period of time where they just don't hear another word you tell them. So you've just told the family that they've got cancer. You've just told them that they've got a terminal disease and they are not going to survive from it. That's a whole hell of a lot for anyone to understand. And you have to understand as the physician, as the clinician, that they are probably not going to hear another damn word you say. That's okay. Take as many, as much time as you need, answer their questions and come back. That's another thing. Don't abandon the patient. Now, you may not need to care for them surgically or medically or for whatever your service or your practice may be, but don't just leave them there. If you're the only one communicating with at the time, then it's kind of your responsibility. You have to keep doing so until at least they have someone else that is telling them what they need to hear. And so when you come back the next time, they're going to have processed it. They're going to have had some of that initial denial or grief or, you know, the Kubara stages of things. And that's going to help them kind of start processing it. And then they're going to start having real questions. And now they're going to really understand what you said. And that's when you're going to develop some options and treatment plans and things that they may want to do. And, you know, as people that are trained to avoid death or see death as failure, understand that it's not. And understand that helping a patient get to the point where they understand is powerful and figuring out what the patient wants, how hard they want to fight, if they want to fight, is extremely powerful. And ultimately, you need to, as physicians, you need to get to the bottom of what the patient wants. What the patient wants is extremely important. It's really important that the family hears what the patient wants. You know, obviously if the patient's unconscious, that's a whole nother scenario, but in a setting where the patient can actually make decisions still, having the family understand what the patient wants gives them the power so that when that patient can no longer make decisions on their own, they know what to do. And if you think about it, how much better can it get? Because when they know what to do, they don't have to have guilt. They don't have to have the, did I do the wrong thing? Did I kill them? Did I, did I lead to their death? Did I, did I prolong their pain based on what, you know, I wanted? And so you alleviate some of that guilt. And so understanding that you have to take the family member's own opinion out of it and honor the opinion of the actual patient, oh, that's everything. So then when it comes time for the end, you know what they wanted. You know where their limits were. And so ultimately you've helped them and they're going to have grief and they're going to be sad because death is always sad. But five, six months later, a year later, they're going to be able to look at that positively and sort of understand that, yeah, they miss their loved one and they you know, would love to have them back. But that things were done on their terms. And in the end, when it's the end, that's really all a patient can ask for. If things happen on their own terms, that's really as good as it can get in some scenarios. And that's okay. And frankly, that's success. And 
It's something I feel strongly about. And we also see, you know, that's sort of the death and dying uh, part of things. But we also see times where patients come in, you know, to the emergency room or whatnot, where they are very, very ill and probably not even conscious just from either their sepsis or needing to be ventilated or sedated or whatever. And they have a condition that they won't survive unless surgery is offered. And often it's that even with surgery, their, their chances of survival are very low. And again, with our training, we're kind of taught that you, you should intervene in the dying patient kind of at all costs. And, you know, I, I vividly remember being upset uh, in my third year of training. And ironically, it was September 11th, 2001. Um, but there was a gentleman, he'd had a heart surgery and he had gotten really sick. And that morning in the middle of everything else that was going on that day, uh, he coded. And my attending and I coded this gentleman literally all day. Literally all day, we were trying to preserve this man's life. And he was only in his 50s, so it seemed appropriate at the time, although I wasn't super involved with the family. Um, but I remember at one point, he was he was severely acidotic, and he was very sick, and he kind of had an appearance of sepsis. And one of the cardiac surgeons had sort of said, I wonder if this is something to do with his gut. Maybe he threw a clot into his gut, and he's got dead bowel or something, because he'd gotten sick all of a sudden. And, um, you know, they wanted me to call, you know, the general surgery guys, and we were talking to one of my attendees. I was like, hey, you know, blah, blah, blah. I presented the whole story like you do when you're a resident and went through the entire picture. You know, and at this point, you understand, this guy was on, you know, vasopressin and epinephrine. And we had a swan gans catheter and his cardiac index was in the toilet. And I mean, the gentleman was not doing well. And, you know, shifting him one way would make him his heart stop. And without, you know, an external pacer, it really wasn't beating anyway. And I mean, you talk about maximal... Uh, intervention uh, short of uh, cardiac bypass. I mean, he was getting everything he could possibly throw at him. And, you know, I presented the case to my, my surgery friend, my surgery attending, sorry. And he was just like, um, yeah, could be, but, you know, I'm sure as heck not going to be his executioner. And I remember being pissed. I remember being really pissed that he wouldn't help this guy. Um, and, you know, now, almost 20 years later, I get it. And he wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong at all. Matter of fact, he was completely right. Because anything that he would do would only cause the patient increased pain, increased suffering, and had the chance of working of about one in a million. And, you know, some people would argue that it was worth the try or the chance, but this guy was not surviving. And, you know, it's not wrong to say no occasionally. And that's not to say that you shouldn't you know, do things because I've, I've seen miracles and I've, I've had them happen recently. Uh, I told a story last week about a guy that, you know, benefited from advances in surgery and we were able to do a robotic surgery to save his life that he probably wouldn't have survived an open surgery. Um, but at the same time, you know, when you've got someone that's at the, at death's door from a surgical disease, from something that might kill them, I think it's important that you tell whoever's helping make their medical decisions that that's the case. And just like with the other scenario, you've got to help them understand, like, this is serious. We're talking about 
long periods of rehab, severe wound care, significant wound care rather, and it might be months to a year if everything goes perfectly before they're able to walk out of rehab and you know the possibility of a tracheostomy and them not being able to eat for a long time and feeding tubes this and you know it's not something that we fully understand as you know the lay public when they listen to radio show not radio shows <laughs> god i'm not 90. um when they see tv shows about doctors and how they you know, treat patients on TV, they have this expectation that, yeah, people get sick, but as soon as you fix what's wrong, then, you know, they're better in a day or two and go home. And, you know, that's just not reality, as we all know. And, you know, I think, and I've heard this many times of patients that actually did survive and they just kind of go like, yeah, but if I had to choose again, I don't know. That was the worst year of my entire life. And they may be grateful to you now and that may be the right decision for them. It may not have been. But I think it's important they understand, you know, people understand what do not resuscitate means, but they have in mind that it's compressions. They have in mind that it's breathing tubes. They don't always understand it's feeding tubes. They don't understand that it's pressors. They don't understand that it's pacemakers, you know, emergency surgeries, tracheostomies, um, all these things that are ancillary treatment to, you know, get us to where what we think is success. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing these things and, and we've seen miracles and then especially in the trauma patients and, you know, we can do things to preserve life that should still be done. Don't get me wrong. But the education part of it uh, with the families and sitting down and trying to talk with them and understand, you know, well, they said they didn't want to live this way and you can understand what that meant for them. And they may not have had the conversations, particularly in a younger patient, but in an older patient, they, hopefully they have. And we got to honor their wishes. And your job, your job as a physician is to try and decipher what you think they want. And that can be hard because they may not have had that conversation, but that's where you got to sit down again. And man, I can't stress this enough. Sit down. It sounds like nothing, but sit down. You become approachable at that point. You have the ability to actually talk to people. When you stand up and you're wearing your white coat, they don't see anything but doctor. They don't see anything but someone that thinks they're above them. And I think you sit down. I think you sit down. You hold hands. You put your hand on a knee. You hug if you need to. And you try and figure out who the person was that you're trying to treat now who they were and what decision they might have made a year ago when they could make their own decisions. And sometimes it's, yeah, they would fight. They would fight for their life and they would do everything humanly possible and only in the most futile incidents, you know, they wouldn't want to be on the ventilator for a, a certain amount of time or whatever. And sometimes they've made a decision of like, no, no, if it's not something that can be easily fixed and easily cured, they don't want to do that. And they want DNR. Um, and they want comfort measures only. And that's perfect. When they have decided what they want to do, when you've been able to honor their wishes, I think you've done your job. And so when you can look yourself in the mirror, when the family can look at themselves in the mirror and say, I did what my loved one would have wanted, no guilt again, no guilt, no stress. Well, stress of loss and all that, but not the additional stress of, I just didn't know what to do. And they've had someone that they can trust help them make that decision. And so that when they finally experience the loss, yeah, of course they're gonna be sad. Of course they're gonna feel the loss. But again, they'll have felt comforted knowing that they were guided 
by someone that cared. And ultimately, that's what it comes down to. You know, on our our website, we we redid it a couple months ago. A couple, yeah, more than a couple months ago. And my partner and I were looking at, you know, like, what do we want our mission statement to be? And like, we kind of wanted people to get an idea of what we're about. And we sort of settled on, you know, providing state-of-the-art compassionate care. And the, the state-of-the-art part, that's easy. State-of-the-art is easy, right? Stay up to date. You know, don't be afraid, afraid to try new things. Keep current with your reading. Um, partner with hospitals to get the techniques and techniques, the, the equipment that you need so that you can provide this care. So state-of-the-art, relatively easy. Standard of care versus state-of-the-art, that's a whole conversation. That's a whole show in and of itself. But basically... We want to provide the best care possible. Okay, we've established that, right? We're going to take care of patients. We're going to do state-of-the-art things. We're going to use robotics. We're going to use um, natural orifice surgery. We're going to do things to improve life with less and less morbidity. But the compassion, right? I think that's the part we're just not always good at. And there are times that I know I excel at it. And there are times I know I don't. And... It's important to understand when you're falling short, being able to look yourself in the mirror and say, that family needs more. This is a more severe circumstance. And take the time. Let your family know. You know, I, I all the time. You know, hey, why are you running late? Hey, listen, I've got a I've got a scenario here and I've I've got to sit down with the family. It's gonna be a little bit. And they understand. They know. Um I'm fortunate in that my wife is is not medical. Uh, she's a teacher. And so when I talk to her about things, I kind of have to change the way I talk about it because she doesn't have the medical training. She's super smart, but she doesn't have medical training. So, you know, if I start talking to, as she says, doctory, uh, I have to dial it back a little bit. And I have to kind of, well, that means this or this means that. And, and, and talk in a way that, that she can understand it uh, with the terms to medicine. And... You know, that's helped me a lot in talking to people in plain language and having that as a backbone and then having her understand when, you know, they need more um, is extremely powerful. So be honest with your family, too. When you've got to take a little extra time because you've got a difficult scenario and you have to talk with the family and it's going to be a bit, make sure they know, too, so you don't, you know, make them mad. I mean, don't, don't lose your own self in some of this, but... At the same time, remember that these people are scared. Uh, the patient's scared, the family's scared, and they need answers, they need the truth, they need compassion. Don't forget that. You know, a couple things are super easy to do. Sit down. I've said it before, I'm gonna keep stressing it. Sit down. Make an effort out of it. You know, there's a little bit of, of theatrics to it, but it's, it's true. The patient is going to feel like you're listening if you take the time to sit down. Grab a chair. Make an effort out of it. Sit down. Get comfortable so that the patient and family understand that you are there to listen and you are there to talk with them. And you're able to go over some of the difficult things that they need to talk about. And, you know, it's huge. Be honest with the patient. Be honest with the family. Don't mix words. Don't push things off onto someone else when you can answer them. 
I mean, if you truly don't know, you truly don't know. But even then, start preparing them for what could be bad. If your differential includes, you know, colon cancer, diverticulitis, you know, foreign body, yada, yada, tell them those things. Tell them what the differential is and tell them that, you know, in scenarios like this, we often see that it's this or that or whatever. And just be honest. That way, when you do have to come back and give them bad news, they're at least somewhat prepared for it. And then when it comes time to give them the news, understand that after you say whatever that bad news is, whether it's cancer, whether it's terminal disease, you know, unrecoverable heart disease, whatever, understand once they hear that they've got some sort of death sentence or something that can be associated with death, they're not going to hear a whole lot. Be prepared to come back. Same day, next day, whatever. Tell the patient. Tell the patient that you know that they haven't heard anything else you say. And make sure that they know that that's okay too. You're going to ask me the same questions over and over again. And that's fine. My job is to answer them for you. And then when you come back, you know, have realistic treatment plans. Have whatever you can actually offer to make their life better. And, you know, I, I think in doing that, the patient and their family are going to respect you more than the doctor that just says, we're waiting on this and you'll follow up with an oncology and then they'll talk to you about it. And I don't think that's okay. Don't lie to the patient. Don't over, you know, do things. You know, if there's only like a 1% chance that it's actually a tumor or cancer or something like that, you know, don't, don't be silly. But, you know, if you know what it is, tell them what it is. And, you know, I, I find that there's times that patients want to hear you talk like a physician. And there's times that they want to have you talk like a human being. And you know what? It's okay when you sit down and say, this sucks. This fucking sucks. And I'm sorry. I'm not saying you should cuss at every patient, but talking like a human, talking like you care, talking like it affects you, because it should, helps them. And it helps them realize that you care. And then, you know then you're going to be helping them through the end. And in helping them through the end, you know, they're going to remember you. Not that you need to be remembered, but the memory won't be as negative for them. The memory will be, you know, we lost so-and-so and Dr. So-and-so, gosh, they made it bearable. They helped us understand and get through it. And again, not that you need to be remembered, but their memory of it will be more positive for your involvement in it. And then, and I would say lastly, well, I got two more points, I think, and then I'll, I'll get off my soapbox and uh, go from there. But basically, I think the other thing is um, when, when it comes time to talking about the end, you know, there are times that, you know, we've got research studies and we've got protocols that we can add. And there's always, it seems no matter how far advanced something is, there's always something medically that we can kind of throw at disease. And that may be appropriate for the patient. It may not. And I think often, especially for surgeons, but, you know, maybe for others as well, you may be sort of more ancillary in their care, but 
I think it's important for them to understand that at all times, they're in charge of their own health care. You're not. Other physicians aren't. They are. And so when you've got a physician that says, hey, you know, we can do this, we can do that, and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, patients will get confused. And educated patients will get confused. But if you can come in and say, well, that sounds great. And I know Dr. So-and-so, he's super smart or she's super smart. And, you know, that's an option. Um, they have to understand that they don't have to. And not everyone does that. I see it over and over again where they kind of feel like they're going to be letting the other doctor down if they don't. And they may be tired. The family may be tired. And it may be their time. It may not. They may want to fight. But let them know that they don't have to that in the end, they're in control of their own health care. And they have the ability to say, stop. They have the ability to say, I'm done. It's time. It's time for hospice. It's time for comfort care. And we as physicians have to understand that that is not failure. It is not something that we should dread. It's not something that we should run away from. It's something that should be embraced as what it is, which is the natural conclusion to a life. And that's something that is universal for all of us. And helping people get through that is one of the more rewarding things in my career. And as I sit here talking about it, I've, I've thought about so many patients that I've cared for over the years and how kind of employing most of this approach, I can only think of one time that it had a bit of a negative connotation. And for whatever reason, this gentleman was in, in complete denial and I, I really couldn't get him to kind of embrace his, his problem. And, you know, I now recognize being older, that really wasn't my fault either, but he just thought of me as condescending and, and conceited and that I was uh, kind of looking down on him for not wanting to do something. I, I don't remember all the stories, but I remember him being pretty upset with me. And I apologized to him and I uh, let other people talk to him because he just didn't need what I was offering at the time and recognized that too, I guess. And finally, as we close out here, I just kind of want to, you know, when you lose a patient to an inevitable process like cancer or terminal disease, um, it's okay to go to their funeral. You know, it's okay to offer condolences, send a card, make a phone call, whatever's appropriate. Um, I think people feel comfort in that and that, you know, in some small way, we may have been part of their life and part of their end. And knowing that we, you know, cared enough to actually do something more is, I think, pretty powerful too. So don't be afraid to do that. Um, I've not done that enough, honestly. And uh, yeah, that's something I'm going to make a little bit more prominent. Um, to be honest, honestly, sometimes it just happens and, you know, we're just not aware as we're, uh, we do have very busy lives, but make an effort, make an effort to try and find uh, how your patients are doing. If they've passed for some reason, you know, don't be afraid to, to do something for them so that they can uh, at least have some closure from you that uh, their physician that cared for them, cared for them, you know? And so, uh, yeah, that's my soapbox for this week. Uh, wow. 43 minutes. I, I kind of thought that my might, speak for maybe about 20 minutes uh, is all. And uh, frankly, I was a little worried that I wouldn't even make that. Uh, so I guess I had a little more to say about this than I thought, but uh, it's been good. It's actually been good for me as well. I think, um, like I said at the beginning, you know, 2020 has been a, a rough year 
and we've all had to deal with things that we never thought we'd have to deal with. And I find myself lately kind of being somewhat more pensive and reflective about just things in general. And uh, I've got two or three patients right now that I'm caring for that kind of fall into this category. And uh, I can I can honestly say that in the positive, uh, for the positive, that I benefit from their interaction and the interaction with them and helping them deal with these difficult situations probably more than they do for me. Um, although it's you know, impossible to tell. Um, but yeah, I think it's something that if you as a physician that are, is out there or any kind of caregiver, whether it be a nurse, a PA, nurse practitioner, MA, anyone that's in the healthcare family, uh, I think having that compassion to listen, to talk, to sit down, hold hands, be honest, Things that you can do to comfort patients are immensely powerful, and I encourage you to do them. So there you go. All right. Well, this has been Dr. Chris, the surgery guy, talking about something just a little bit different. Uh, we're not going to do too many of these types of episodes, although, you know, it's been good for me. And, and in some ways, uh, maybe that's as important as anything. So. Yeah, we'll be back next week with a more uh, traditional approach and we'll talk to someone about something very exciting in in industry and uh, we'll go from there. Uh, So thanks again for listening to Dr. Chris, the surgery guy. I'm your host, Dr. Chris, and we'll see you next week. I do want to give a shout out and a great thanks to Andrew from Approaching Nirvana. He's responsible for the music on the intro and the outro sections of of the podcast and I want to appreciate the use of his music. Uh, Thank you very much, Andrew. Y'all have a great day.